Welcome to another episode of the Ulster Rugby Roundup. I'm Extra of Six Nations and the Pro 14 on today's agenda. So joining me, Gareth Thomas, who discuss both, are rugby reporter Jonathan Bradley. Hello, Jonathan. Hi, you well? All, all very well, Jonathan. Um, as well, joining the two of us uh, is Ulster Rugby photographer extraordinaire, John Dixon. Hello, John. Hello, Gareth. How are you? Is that your official job title? Did I get it right, John? I always wonder what your job title is. I don't really have one. <laughs> so that's a good one, then. I like that one. You should adopt that one. Photographer extraordinaire, yeah. but okay. it doesn't really—it doesn't fully encompass what what else you do. You know, I don't want to limit your your role to just photographer. You're so much more, John. Thank you, Gareth. <laughs> so plenty to get through today. Then lots of talking points and listener questions. But we begin with uh, a little bit of live news. Um, we'll not spend too much time on this as uh, it's a moving story and will quite likely have progressed a little bit by the time you hear this but Jonathan just tell us a little bit about what's happening with the the French rugby team after Sunday's game against Ireland. Yes so just news this morning that uh, a member of the French staff has tested positive for coronavirus so all the players took their normal tests on Monday and none of the playing group tested positive. Ireland have since said that all their players had their PCR testing done on Monday as usual. No positives and will be tested again later in the week whenever they get back into camp on Thursday or Friday, Thursday and Friday. But the French squad has had to go into isolation, obviously. So just with it being a follow week, it doesn't look like at present it's going to cause too much disruption, obviously. If a squad had had to go into self-isolation in a match week, it would have been a different story, but um, it doesn't look like there'll be any uh, any disruption at present to uh, round three anyway. Yeah, certainly the that's the bright point, I suppose. Just It is a, a reminder of what uh, can happen to any sporting competition at any given moment in the world that we're in. But as you say, hopefully there'll be there'll be no disruption um, to the Six Nations that comes from that. So, so on to the match on Sunday itself then, Ireland 13, France 15. Another close call for Ireland, but ultimately this will go down as uh, two defeats from their opening two games. And Jonathan, that is um, a disappointment to say the least. Yeah, well, they beat the spread. France were three point favourites, they lost by two. So they've been a very negative spin on that, Gareth. You know, put it down as a win then. <laughs> uh, they beat the bookies, if not the French. I think the main issue was they didn't look like they were going to score at the end. Really, for that sort I think the last sort of 20 minutes. They really didn't look like they were going to score a try and they hadn't looked particularly threatening throughout the game, really. There was the James Lowe non-try whenever France had 14 men. There was a really key moment in the game, but it was another game similar to the Wales game, but without the uh, mitigating circumstances of the red card where they just didn't look threatening enough with the ball. John, what what did you make of them? Obviously, that try, that non-try, the James Lowe one, was very, very close. Like, we're talking millimetres. And then the way France got up the pitch and scored the try that they did, I suppose that was just summed up the, the tournament so far. Yeah, it was just like a punch, punch in the guts, really, wasn't it? Um, I think what was disappointing for me, and I think Handy summed it up in his post-match, was the fact that uh, whenever France went down to 14 men, Ireland didn't even look like scoring. That was crucial. A crucial point of the game and in today's international rugby test match rugby you, you have to take every chance and um and that was unfortunately ireland's downfall you didn't t- they didn't take their chances are they even creating enough chances john or is it, no. is it converting the chances or what exactly what exactly well, yeah i think it's the fact that they're not creating the chances for long spells and, and that's opening 20 minutes um the game plan certainly had, had France in the back foot and Ireland looked very comfortable and knew exactly what they were doing. And, you know, that was the, I was quite confident that we could win the game. Then in the second half, it seemed, France seemed to step it up a bit. Ireland just went back into their shell. Whether you could say that the, the French were actually very good in defence, which they obviously, with Sean Edwards now in charge, I think, you know, there's no doubt that he's probably probably one of the best defence, if not the best defence coach in the world. And uh, it was a great coup de France uh, that got, got him uh, to travel to Paris. But Sean Edwards isn't playing on the pitch, his team are, and Ireland have to, they know what to expect. And they should have been able to do something about it, but they just failed to do it. Uh, they didn't execute. And, you know, at the end of the day, uh, we had the ball in the last five minutes and we were on the halfway, made it up into their 10-meter line. And then all of a sudden, France pushed us back, back over into our own half, I think on two occasions. And we just weren't going anywhere with it. And you were just waiting 
for the ball to be dropped or knocked on mm. or, or turned over, which is obviously then that's what happened at the end ultimately and, and we didn't win the match. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're looking for that penalty and it just didn't happen. So that sort of um, toothless nature of, of Ireland's attack uh, is certainly a talking point amongst fans and amongst our questions today. Stuart or Watson asks, what's this comparing the province's attack and Ireland's attack? Ireland seems so much more blunt. Is that just because the defence are much better at test level or is it a lack of attack coaching he asks he says he doesn't want to start a witch hunt against Mike Cat, obviously Aaron's attack coach but he says we haven't offered much since he arrived which was just after the World Cup Big Jim adds, uh, adds that four provinces can score tries so why can't Ireland so Jonathan I have put some work in in the background to these statistics just to prove that I occasionally do put some sort of work in so this season, I worked out the average tries per game for the provinces, which comes in at 3.8. Uh, Leinster obviously leading out at five, Ulster on four, and the other two provinces behind that. But Ireland then, so comparing that 3.8, Ireland since the World Cup in their 11 matches have averaged 2.45 tries per game. But we have to take into account the seven they scored against Italy last year. So if that's removed, there's an average of two tries per game in the other 10. So that's just my little, uh, my, I just wanted to show my homework there, Jonathan. Show my work on out as you're always told in your maths exams. But um, yeah. to go back to the questions, what is the problem? Why are Ireland averaging two tries a game there in those other 10 matches? Is it because the defences are much better? Is it the problem with the coaching? What do you see it? Uh, what do you see the problem as? Well, the defences are much better, um, obviously. You know, Bigger mentioned uh, Edwards there as one of the best defence coaches in the world and if you're playing in another competition then you know Gail Figu who the French have sort of made this big deal about his defensive work and he's a brilliant defensive player but um, almost giving him this official role as defensive captain and you see him basically making up 20 metres to come in and make that tackle you know that's a tackle that doesn't get made in the Pro 14 um, on that James Lowe non-try and you do have to when you're comparing the province's strike rates you would have to compare it to the tries per game in club rugby compared to tries per game in international rugby. Ireland will point out that they were the top scorers in, or the top try scorers in last year's Six Nations. All this being said, and as you pointed out earlier, but these are also the best players from the pro from the Irish sides in the Pro 14 competing for Ireland. So they're not taking the step up. You look at the statistics and, you know, two tries scored is sixth in the competition probably more damningly um is the fact that their line breaks are fifth in the competition just an absolute paucity of line breaks at the minute which feeds into that idea not that they're not even not that they're not taking their chances but they're just not creating the chances farrell was asked about it afterwards and he's you know saying that he feels that ireland do have these players these x-factor players that everybody looks at you know, France with DuPont, Wales with Reese Zamet. You know, he thinks James Lowe and Gary Ringrose, just to use two examples, can be those guys. But at present, they're not. And that is why there's so many questions about Mike Cat's system coming from people, because people believe that Ireland do have the players to be creating line breaks, to be getting success on the game line. Like Bigger says about, the, you know, that last passage of play. And he's exactly right. That's exactly how I felt. Like the turnover felt inevitable because Ireland weren't getting across the game line. And they've consistently not been getting across the game line in this competition. People talk about offloads and, you know, using that to create these openings. But for my mind, the ability to play that offloading game, and we see it from France all the time, the first block of that is getting success on the game line because that opens... You know, that opens those inside shoulders. It creates the momentum of going forward so people can free their hands. You have to get that gain line success first. And for whatever reason, Ireland, I suppose, really under my cat's stewardship in this competition, haven't been doing it. Johnny, can I can I just ask you, at the end of the day, it's the style of rugby as well. It would put you to sleep. You yeah. know, you watch some of that some of the southern hemisphere. Rugby um, and, and the super um, super rugby style. It's unbelievable the way they take the ball into contact. There's boys coming in from 20 metres back, full tilt, and they're just taking a pop pass and they're they're smashing into boys and then offloading and then they're playing off the deck. And it's just continuous pace and, and running straight. We want to put this ball behind everybody. And they're passing, boys are running in front and the ball's going behind. And before you know it, you've stretched it to the wing and boys are trying to hold their width and they've just been running at the touch. There's no room then. They get too narrow. 
why they just don't try to hit more up the middle and, and use the big boys. Um, if we take like somebody like, for example, somebody like Marcel, who is, as we know, a long, a big, big, strong runner, like Stuart McCluskey's a big, strong runner, but put Marcel in the centre, let him take a charge from 20 yards out and pop him the ball and see how many people are going to stop him. You know, even that adds a bit of excitement into the game. And yeah. you don't see that. We're all, it seems to be, let's feed the ball out round the backs. Let's the silky back passing. Let's get the ball out. And it doesn't work. It's not working. They're not getting across the game line. That's the problem. So it, like the move to what the move into away from Joe Schmidt's philosophy of playing rugby and into what was supposed to be Andy Farrell and Mike Cat's philosophy of playing rugby was that the players were going to be charged with this greater ability to make decisions on the hoof, to play what they see, that things weren't going to be as prescribed as they were under Schmidt. But you know, you watch the especially that sort of opening twenty five minutes of the game on. Sunday, and it looked like that couldn't be further from the case because the game, the game plan, which I actually thought Billy Burns executed fairly well, assuming that that was the game plan, was to pepper, especially Doolan in the backfield, presumably on the basis that the weather in Dublin was going to be as bad as the weather was up here come kick off on Sunday. But it had actually eased considerably, and like in those sort of first five minutes, you thought, right, this could be a tough day for Doolan. But I thought, on the whole, he dealt with it all brilliantly. Like he he looked comfortable enough in dealing with those kicks. And there were so many times when, you know, the ball came to Irish backs and they had men outside them. And there looks like the ability that they could have, de- it could have developed in this situation. They were going to stretch France and instead they kick. Like I'm not somebody who automatically says that kicking is negative rugby because you can see the success of a well-executed kicking game. But if you're not getting the joy out of it that they didn't really get after those sort of early exchanges, and it's at the expense of the potential to create chances, opportunities, even just create space. Because to me, it looks like everything that Ireland do has to be so nailed on and so exact. They have to get it so right. Like you mentioned Super Rugby. And I suppose just the varying degrees of skill sets may be too harsh a word, because obviously we're dealing with test quality players like they have the skills but it's I suppose executing those skills under pressure like there was one just before the low opportunity where Hugo Keenan who again I thought had a decent game but he just pulled his pass too far back and then that's a chance gone again with the James Lowe incident if Keenan had run a bit straighter initially before giving the ball low that would have freed up a wee bit more space but you're talking really, really fine margins and split-second decision-making, but in the absence of those other opportunities, everything looms so large in the end game now when you're when everybody's sort of dissecting it. And it's because these chances, one, are so few and far between, and two, to me, it just looks like everything has to go almost perfectly for these sort of strike plays, if you like, to create the opportunity. It sounds to me like you both think there's something systemically wrong there with the game plan rather than just the players aren't doing it in the pitch, which obviously isn't a good sign for Andy Farrell's coaching ticket. Well, what I think, you know, it's, it's even bigger than that. I think it's, um, if you look look at the Premiership rugby that was played last weekend, I watched um, Gloucester against uh, Bristol and it was a cracking game. And the amount of line breaks in that game, offloading, uh, just general uh, ability to get across the game line from both teams. And it ended up with a kick, uh, a long-range penalty separating the two teams uh, at the end of the match. I think it was something like 17-15 or something in around that. But it was a great game to watch, a lot of entertainment. Likewise, Quinns against Leicester at the Stoop. Fantastic rugby. Um, great pace on it, um, ball getting out wide, boys moving the ball at pace, running onto the ball at pace, smashing into fellas and and holding on to the ball accurately, getting it laid back quickly, Danny Quicker flicking it away, and you know, uh, Lewis Liner coming onto the ball, scoring two cracking tries, you know, just just interesting game st- um, styles that are totally away from what Test Match Rugby is getting to. Wales, I thought that the weekend did rightly, um, again, they look as if they can win and they believe they can win. Uh, and I think 
I just hope they can go and beat England now. <laughs> That's the big thing for them. Um, and, you know, from a team that was zero last year, you know, where everybody had them written off, they're all of a sudden now they're on the front foot and they're, and they're playing with confidence. And, and it'll be interesting to see now how they, they do against England. But, I mean, unless there's a, a whole sea change in how the game's going to go on attack and be more direct, I think, running the ball across the pitch from side to side and doing these throwback moves, it's, it's not, it's not going to work. Did France entertain you? Yeah, they did because it was the first time they got the ball, they scored. Yeah, literally on the first time that they got the ball on the attack on the front foot, what did they do? They scored. And it was a great score. And it was just great rugby as well. Um, so, yes, they entertained. Um, not the way I wanted them to entertain, but they entertained. <laughs> Johnny, what do we think? I think there was a question along these lines as well about Andy Farrell's coaching ticket. Mark Dempsey asks, are Ireland going backwards under Farrell? Although Ireland's relatively poor spell predates his appointment, even though with green-tinted spectacles, must be struggling to see any positives, he said. I mean, we're given off too for being negative. That's a that's a very negative question to, to, set, to set us off on. What do you think, though, Jonathan? I mean, is it is it unfair? I think Stephen Ferris has quotes out today there saying basically that uh, another couple of rocky weeks and the pressure questions really will start to be asked about Andy Farrell. Uh, we'll maybe get to the, uh, the pressure on Farrell whenever we talk about selection, but they've been going backwards since 2018, um, since essentially since the day they beat the All Blacks. Personally, and I'm willing to be corrected on this, I think they've actually been better in these past two games than they were in the autumn. I thought they were terrible in the autumn. I think there's been massive improvements at the set piece. I think Andrew Porter has been massive in the scrum, really since for Ireland, obviously, I'm not talking about Leinster against Saracens or anything like that, but for Ireland, I think he's been really, really good in improving their scrum. I think Henderson, over the past two weeks, really just showing... I don't want to just say it's because of Paul O'Connell, because there's obviously so much more that goes into it than that, but like there was a danger that we were all going to be accused of making too big a deal about Paul O'Connell coming onto this coaching ticket, given his relative lack of experience and stuff, but the improvement that the line-outs made over these last two weeks, to the point where the defensive line-out is now a weapon, that was I think what made the French most uncomfortable on Sunday, Ireland's ability to challenge their line-out. The breakdown, which in the absence of Dan Levy through 2019, really looked like it had taken a massive step backwards is getting closer again to what it was in 2018. So to me, there's been steps forward over the past three months from what I said at the time was a pretty dismal autumn campaign. And even going back further than that, like I wasn't impressed with them this time last year either when they were beating Wales and Scotland at home, but not particularly impressively. But the thing that's looming over all of this is what we've just talked about, the fact that they're not scoring enough tries, which at the end of the day is the most important thing. They're averaging a try a game, and fair enough, it's a minuscule sample size over two games. But you're talking about two games where they've lost by a combined seven points. You know, <laughs> one more try a game is the difference between... And we talked about this before as well, how fine the margins were going to be over these first two weeks. This is the difference between them having won two games that they could have won. We're in a position to win. I'm not saying deserve to win, but we're in a position to win. And now sat here with their worst start to your competition since 1998 and everybody asking questions about the coaching ticket. Yeah, I think you're right. I think, I don't think it's, um, I don't think we have given Andy enough time yet. He's still betting in. And I think that you're totally right about the pack. I think there's been a big improvement there in the lineouts. I think Rob Herring's throwing at the weekend, spot on. Uh, even Rob's play around the field, excellent. Uh, Handy, big plus for him. He's, he's getting himself about a bit more, getting really well involved, leading the team. And then uh, Tag Burn, cracking player. One player I'd like to see more involved is Will Connors. I think he's fantastic. Uh, I think, you know, the pack is not my worry. The, the, my worry is the fact that we aren't creating anything from the, the back line, which at the end of the day is basically most of the Leinster back line. And they do pretty well for Leinster. Even that James Lowe move essentially was a Leinster back line move, you know? Yeah. So it's another one of these things that, you know, it is the same the same players, I guess. But like I'd written before this tournament that, you know, the two players that really needed to, I suppose, step up and get themselves into that firmly world-class conversation was going to be James Ryan and Gary Ringrose. Now, obviously, James Ryan's only played 20 minutes, but I, 
you know, as we talked about, everybody else in the pack seems to have stepped up to fill that void. But there's so much of a creative onus on Gary Ringrose. And it's difficult, obviously, because, you know, there's been chopping and changing at the halfbacks and stuff. But if you look at really all those teams, all the best teams in the world really are employing two playmakers in their back line. So it's their 10 and somebody else. You know, we thought in the autumn they were trying to turn it into the 10 and Jacob Stockdale. Prior to that, we discussed the idea of was it going to be Sexton at 10 and Joey Carberry as the second playmaker. But like this sort of goes back to when Australia sort of popularized this like six years ago. And Ireland are still, to my mind, searching for that right balance of who is going to, whether the 10 Sexton or not, but who's going to step up and be that second creative force in the back line that you need in international rugby because the defenses are that much better. There's one player that this uh, lack of creativity might be not good news for, but uh, we had talked very, very sketchingly about Jacob Stockdale potentially struggling to get his place back. That's perhaps not going to be as big a question as it as it may, as it may have been. Um, I don't think I said that. I'll, I'll be kind of no, no, I think I think it was a question. I think it was a question. It was. It wasn't. We didn't say it would happen. I think somebody asked, "Would it?" I'm sure he'll take no personal pleasure from this whatsoever. But a decent Six Nations so far for Jacob Stockdale has to be said. <laughs> yeah. So speaking of Ulster players, I know you've both mentioned him so far, but I think it's worth uh, another bit of a look. MPC just asks, how heroic, totemic, terrific, etc. is Ian Henderson? 18 stitches in his head anyway. <laughs> he took a right bump on the head, didn't he? Unfortunate that clash with Kane Healy, but thankfully both the players seem to be 100% but nasty bang. No, I, I've really been impressed with Andy. He, he stepped up and... He, he really has to now when he there's decent pressure now in that second row berth and he needs to be on his game week in week out and deliver the big fella's doing it so that's all you can ask um, i think he is a great leader you know i'm just delighted for him that he's he's found some decent form and he's doing it out there tag burn is another a stepped up quality another quality player especially over the ball he's uh he's like a third back or another well nearly a fourth back row then and I think he's done very well. Rob Herring has been the other one that's really impressed me. Rory Best, gone. Who's going to take over and who's going to wear the, that green jersey? I think Rob's throwing his uh, all-round game, his ability to get over the ball himself and to take the ball and to tackle was very, very good. So delighted for him too. So it's a, there are really small steps. And as I say, I don't think it's all doom and gloom. As Johnny said, the, the, you know, there's two games to play. We had potentially could have won them both, but we haven't. So let's move on. Next game's Italy. So potentially we should win that mm-hmm. and win it well. And I think get a bit of confidence up again. That's the important thing. Score some tries, for goodness sake. That's what we need to do. <laughs> yeah. Something like the seven, like last year, would do okay. Without giving too much away of your article that's going to be appearing in tomorrow's paper, Jonathan, just uh, tell us a little bit about um, just how highly you rate Ian Henderson's playing at the moment. Yeah, I think he's been absolutely superb. And it's... It's one of these things that you shouldn't really still harbour doubts about his ability to come back and hit the ground running because he's done it so many times. But like, I think he's 29 next week and just sort of like the older he gets, the more you sort of think to yourself, you know, he's going to need a run of games to hit the levels that we know he can hit. But the whatever it was, 60, 60 odd minutes against Wales, like that was a man who'd been out for two months and two days, hadn't played any rugby, like was still uh, having to have his knee sort of heavily strapped like only a week or two before playing that game. So to make the impact that he has is um, incredible to him. And John, I think, touches on a really interesting point there of the pressure. Like, you talk about people saying Stockdale wasn't going to get his place back. Whenever Henderson got injured against Scotland in December, there was sort of talk that, you know, Ryan Baird could come in here and this could be the sort of forced passing of the torch, if you like, that Baird was going to come in and it was going to be Baird and Ryan for the next six or seven years. Whereas now... Henderson to me has emerged as in how he led the team and how well I understand they got beat, but just the manner that he carried himself was every inch an international captain mm-hmm. that to me puts his hand up as an option if Andy Farrell or whoever decides that they want a bridge between Sexton and James Ryan. Mm-hmm. And this is somebody who said 13 months ago that he thought there were better candidates to lead Ireland than himself. But also just when you're looking at it in terms of Lions selection, like we all know Hendy was massively unlucky not to get a test cap in New Zealand. He played that first game when they were all jet lagged and probably suffered for it 
in terms of selection moving forward, but he was brilliant in every other game in that tour that he played. But to be honest, I wouldn't, I would have had him as an outside bet for the Lions, should the Lions go ahead whenever this season starts, just because there's so much depth in the second row. You look at Itoje, um, Alan Wynn Jones, Johnny Gray, Scott Cummings, James Ryan, obviously. But to me, Henderson and Tyg Byrne have been mad, so, so impressive over the past two weeks that they're right, right in that discussion now. And it's, it's a subplot that, you know, people get frustrated about how big a role it plays in the Six Nations because the Six Nations is the Six Nations. But with Ireland out of contention, now it's, sort of, it's going to be interesting to watch that battle, obviously presuming that uh, either the tour goes ahead or something goes ahead this summer, you know. Exactly. John, just before we move on from this little bit, I just wanted to touch a little bit more on what you were saying about Rob Herring because you do hear it sort of thrown at him that, you know, he's the best of maybe not the highest quality bunch of, of hookers in there that Ireland have ever had. But then um, you certainly rate him very highly. I'm not saying I say that, but you do hear it said by in some quarters. Rob is quality, real quality. And I'm, I'm just pleased now that he's got a chance to to, to make that jersey his own. Um, he's, you know, he's fallen obviously in Rory's foot, footsteps and he's big bits to fill there, massive bits to fill there. But I think he's doing a damn good job. I think he just needs, uh, you know, a few... You know, good runs uh, as a starting two in the green jersey. He's getting that, so may, long may that continue, and just and, and it will continue with the way he's playing. Yeah, thankfully, absolutely. Like, improvement at the line out is obvious. Everybody can see that. A hundred percent on his own ball again at the weekend. But something that I think the not Rob Herring benefits from, but the narrative surrounding Rob Herring that you mentioned there, Gareth, is really aided by in the Six Nations is the increase in stats that you get. Mm. So you get stats for unheralded things like own rock arrivals, things like that that you don't get in the Pro 14. And Rob Herring is consistent, consistently features in that because he works... So hard, yeah. He works very, very hard around the park. I'm loath to say on-scene work because you know there are, there are people that see it. But it's stuff that doesn't necessarily jump out at you in the same way that a Ronan Callagher line break up the middle does. Mm-hmm. But he's just he's he's such a such a hard working player. So time ticking on then as always. But we have a couple of questions uh, coming in about Ireland's scrum half position and the options available. Uh, funny that that we should have, have questions on that position. Anthony English says all the talk pre match was about how Dupont runs the shoe for France. Does it highlight the change in direction we want scrum halves to play, and does it show the need for a certain number nine that happens to play a similar role for a certain? province that Irish media aren't fans of he says that of course perhaps we suggest maybe John Cooney's talking about Stuart K Martin then says the fact that Craig Casey was an unused sub on Sunday uh, what type of message does that send to his fans and the likes of Marmion and Cooney etc as there appears to be no logical reason why he wasn't utilized does it just help fuel the growing negativity he says that exists among fans towards the coach so a couple of fairly different questions, but as I say, time taken on. So what do we think? I mean, that idea of a French scrum half playing that role, it's, you know, that's not really DuPont. I don't think so much as it's just the way French teams play. You know, you hear about this idea of le petit général has become a concept, but, you know, it was originally a player people were talking about, um, you know, Jacques Ferreau, who was a French scrum half in the 1970s. So this idea of French international teams playing off nine isn't brand new. It's obviously helped when you've got a nine who's as brilliant as Dupont is. But 100% agree. Obviously, Cooney plays in the same fashion at Ulster of leading the charge, if you like, th- from nine. But the way Ireland play internationally with more emphasis on the 10 as the attacker is the way as I see it, most international teams play. And Jalabert for France is no slouch either. It's just like, I suppose French teams have a historic inclination for their nine to lead the side more and France presently have the best scrum half in the world. So I wouldn't make it about Cooney is what I'm saying, but I understand that Cooney remains in a mood of topic. The Dupont thing is is quite interesting because I don't think he's as effective as he is with Intermac with him because it looks as if he does try to do too much himself at times. Where with Intermac there, the two of them seem to play a lot freer, and that is a real threat. Um, Having said that, he is probably the best scrum half in the world at the minute, there's no doubt. Why Casey didn't get on, I think it's probably because the game got so tight at the end, and bringing um, somebody on when it got like that in the last 10, 5 minutes was probably the wrong thing to do anyway, so I can understand why Andy Farrell didn't do that. Uh, I don't think there's any conspiracy theory around it. It's just that the game got tight at the end and he needed to keep 
as much consistency in his in his uh, backline as possible. I just wonder why he's there though. Like, I don't disagree. It's a massive situation to throw somebody in, but if he can't come into that situation, should he be on the bench? Are you not hamstringing yourself a bit in that regard? Like when you've got players like Cooney and Marmion that could be on the bench that you could bring into that situation because to me the attack had gone flat and like again like somebody knows more about halfback play could correct me but to me the game was calling out for a change there and Ireland didn't make it and that was at least part of I thought what well, the reason why we saw them look so lacking in ideas in that final passage so like to me everyone who's in your 23 you should be confident of bringing on so if he wasn't bringing confident of bringing Case into that situation I'm not sure what the value was in him being on the bench because you weren't going to be up by 10 points in the last 20 minutes so you're only going to bring him on if you were getting hammered you know are you confused about Cooney's uh, position he finds him in at Ireland John yeah I would, I would say you know if you're looking at who is the form nine over the last two years you have to say John Cooney has been that guy whether or not his face fits in Dublin. I just, I just can't understand it. Um, he seems to be doing everything right for Ulster kicking, and he's obviously got that other thing that's so important is the goal kicking inside of him as well. And in Test match rugby, that's crucial. Um, so I, I can't understand why he doesn't get the opportunities that he should get. You know, or he deserves. Yeah, and Jonathan, what about the last bit of that question? Then the sense of growing negativity towards the coach. You know, you said earlier you wanted to touch on this pressure. Then do you sense that negativity, and where do you where do you see that going over the next few weeks? Well, they need to get results. Is the long and short of it. Um, the Six Nations is about results. That's why we never see the level of experimentation that people call for in the Six Nations at any stage, but especially so now, like. I don't know what other people are thinking, but like I can't see a situation where Farrell thinks, Do you know what, stuff it. Um, we're not going to win the competition, so I'm going to pick five, six, seven, eight players that I think aren't necessarily ready now, but are to help them be ready for 2023 because he needs to get results. <laughs> like he's not going to be the man to lead Ireland to the World Cup if he doesn't get results. So this uh, this idea that now that Ireland are out, the shackles are off, and you're going to see a completely different team. I just I can't see. I, I would just love him to do it. <laughs> I think 2023 is getting closer and closer and uh, we need to have boys match ready by that stage. And the only way you're going to do that is give them game time. We're out of the Six Nations. We can't win the Grand Slam. We can't win the Triple Crown. And we're not going to win the championship from where we are. So what is the problem? I have no issues if we lose the next three games, but give lots of guys game time that they're going to learn from and it'll benefit Ireland in the long run. Absolutely no problem with that. But can you see one Farrell thinking like that when it's his job? Like, I agree with you, but it's not my job. Like, I won't lose my job. And do you think that that the wider public would go with that if they get whitewashed? Well, look, let's say, let's say it goes, it goes, it comes out and says, right, guys, let just like I've said, let's, let's say, Let's give it a go here for the next three games. Let's try in different combinations. Let's experiment here because we're not going to win anything, but we're going to be playing test match rugby at perfect arena to try things. Go to the public. Let's say this is what my intention is. Do it. I don't think you're going to get them crucified for it, you know? I just think that because the ready-made comparison is obviously with France. Like, France just backed all these young players and said, look, we're playing 2023 on home soil. We want to win this competition. We don't, you know, we don't want to be, for lack of a better word, the embarrassment the previous French teams have been on big stages. Obviously, the red card at the last World Cup getting absolutely trounced by New Zealand four years before that. But the difference, I suppose, as I see it, is one, they had that public backing, I think, the sense of it I get is they had that public backing that things might get rocky as it were. They haven't been, they've been brilliant. And I don't know if the Six Nations rugby fan, if that's not a dismissive term, would go along with that. You know, people that are coming in for this. Part of the reason why we see the abuse directed to players on social media is because um, there's so much more interest in a competition like this. And I'm not sure if that would carry through if the team was getting whitewashed. But also, and uh, I know you want to get on to Ulster, so I'll not bang on about this too much, but just the fact that these play- these young players of France have backed were first choice at their ta- at their club sides back in France, whereas these guys, the people want to see in the Ireland team, haven't been able to do that at their provinces yet. That's a product of Ireland only having four teams to pick from. But Harry Byrne, as an example, is third choice Leinster at half, whereas Roman Entomac, while a similar age profile, has played 50, 60 odd times, for one of the best teams in Europe, with the guy with the twenty-one-year-old that's playing scrum half of them, but you know, obviously him and Dupont have that Toulouse connection as well, and 
to me, for this thing that people want to see to be effective, it has to start lower down. Or start These guys the need to be playing European games for their provinces. Or start at the top. In what way? You know, you print away the old branches first. Let the young group, young growth come up. <laughs> <laughs> and we need to print you out of the podcast, John. Oh, dear, dear. <laughs> Well, look, we'll move on to, to Ulster. Donald's question acts as a handy bridge for us to do that. He says much was made of Simon Easterby, having been covering too many coaching roles before the introduction of Paul O'Connell in the Ireland coaching ticket. He asked now, Ulster risking doing the same by not taking on another coach and asking Dan Silber to cover both skills and attack at the province. What do you think, Joe? Well, I think there's no man better for the job, to be quite honest. Dan's uh, obviously... Um, a quality coach with RBAI. Don't forget, he was with Ballyclare High School and, ba- well, Ballon the Hinch first. I have put the, and he was with us <laughs> at Ballon the Hinch. <laughs> and uh, and Banbridge. And then Ballyclare High School, he took them to the Schools Cup Finals. Uh, then obviously is what he did with Inst as well. You know, he's got a massive track record. And, you know, I, I probably may be a bit biased because my son went to Inst and I been uh, going to watch training and, Watching them play over the years, I've got to know Dan quite well. And obviously with his time at Ballon Hinch, I got to know him quite well. And I can't speak highly enough of him. Um, I think that he'll do a great job for Ulster. You know, he, he's an out half himself. He's a back. And, you know, he know, know he knows the game inside out. Being a Kiwi as well, he has, he's just got that sort of uh, rugby knowledge in his uh, DNA. Quality guy. I think he'll do a great job. No, absolutely. I actually worked with uh, Dan quite closely whenever he was Banbridge coach. That was my first job working the, the paper in Banbridge. And they would have been ringing Dan every week, annoying him. You wouldn't, you wouldn't have had too many good stories. What? That was, you know, Dan, Dan at Banbridge. Nah. Dan, Dan went to Ballon the That's when he became good. <laughs> This is a, an impartial podcast, John. None of that chat. So moving on, of course, to Ulster game this weekend. Ulster actually playing a match of rugby. It is phenomenal in Glasgow on Friday night at 7.35. The return to Pro 14 after however many weeks it's been, six or eight or something. John, probably a lot of people are wondering just what's been happening over those weeks, just what the Ulster team are doing, how they're staying match fit. And you are one of the privileged few who have been there in the background seeing what, what has been happening. So give us a little bit of flavour of what's been going on. Well, they've been a, a bit of time off after their last series of games and then back into it. And they've been flat out for the last three weeks, basically training uh, every um, more or less Every week at the, the going through their build up for this game, their focus has been on the Glasgow game this this Friday night, and um, it's I can tell you it's been training sessions I've been to have been very intense, um, very tough. The big problem I always think is when you don't get match to play and or play against another opposition, you, you can lose your match sharpness. So Dan has them try uh, training quite intensive, quite physical. They have different levels of um, commitment and uh, everything <laughs> I've seen has been fairly high now. And uh, it's quite impressive to see. Mm-hmm. So there, there we are, they will be in great shape for the weekend, re- ready to go. Aye, so it's not really a concern for you then, a lack, any sort no. of potential lack of match fitness? No, 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 it's not. They've been very, very uh, well managed. Uh, mm-hmm. Obviously, they have their rest day as well this week. The, the, I was at training today, for example, mm-hmm. and they um, had did a full session, a uh, pitch session, uh, the backs and the forwards, and they had they have a team that uh, runs as Glasgow playing against them this morning and trying different things out against them and defending and attacking against them. So, it's very well prepared. Um, they have a day off tomorrow and captains run on Thursday, so uh, matches on Friday. So it's, uh, I would say they're about match ready now. As you've pointed out, previous points during the season, Jonathan, those training sessions are probably some of the more difficult matches that have come up against uh, this season. Yeah, well, it's you know something that everyone mentions, the uh, intensity that they train at. And obviously, um, without denigrating any of their opponents, not all of their games have been uh, particularly intense so far. So... Um, yeah, they're like all the players were asked about it yesterday at the at the media briefing, and you know John Andrew was sort of saying um, while it is good to uh, have those weeks to get the the body back, nobody really wants six weeks off. I think he was saying that the longest he'd been off in the middle of a season before was um, that Ospreys that the best forgotten Ospreys Champions Cup qualification game that was like three <laughs> weeks after uh, their last Pro 14 game in the season back in 2018. So. It is a real rarity. Dan McFarland said he uh, 
had a rare opportunity to read some books. We know Dan's uh, fairly singular in his rugby focus during the season, so that was probably uh, a, a nice little uh, distraction for him during the six weeks. And obviously, you know, we went down and played Ireland as well. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, essentially off a mini preseason whether they can hit the ground running or not. But pluses and negatives, I guess, because it was a chance for boys to rest bodies and stuff. Haven't been, mm-hmm. you know, this is a season where they essentially. It's two different seasons, but essentially they played their first game in the middle of August. Yeah, you know, probably a welcome break for for many. Some of those that are uh, closer to fitness now then than they were last time Ulster played. John, uh, we're out on the fixture update that were was published yesterday. Probably three of the more interesting names in that was Jacob Stockdale, Robert Balakoon, and Will Addison. Now we know that Dan said yesterday that uh, Balakoon and Addison, he's hoping will play again this season. Although, as you were musing earlier, Jonathan, we're not exactly sure whether that would mean during the Rainbow Cup, which is still officially happening. So um, whether we see them again in the Pro 14 this season or not, uh, we're, we're still not that sure on, but um, fingers crossed on that one. And then Jacob Stockdale, who uh, is not playing this weekend against Glasgow, but Dan said yesterday that he's not too far away, John. You've been a training. Are you allowed to give us any inside information as to how much you've seen these boys? No. <laughs> <laughs> I can't that say the answer. There we go. We'll leave it at that then. Yeah. Uh, like it's it. You know, you're talking about Ulster's essentially first choice back three. Yeah. Are you talking about those three players? Like it's easy yeah. to forget because Balkan and Addison haven't played all season. How big players they are for Ulster? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Absolutely. And you throw Stockdale into that mix of late. You know. We love Mike Laurie, obviously, but last season and the season before that, that's Ulster's Champions Cup back three. Mm-hmm. And then you throw Sean Reedy, he's a massively important player. I people, <laughs> it's another one of these debates of, you know, if we keep saying how unsung he is, does he, uh, <laughs> does he lose his unsung tag? But Sean Reedy is somebody that's massively important for Ulster. Yeah. And obviously he's out as well. Yeah. Um, so... It's significant injuries, but as we've alluded to before, during international windows, none of the teams that Ulster are playing are going to be overly sympathetic to uh, to their plights, given that they've got one of the deepest squads in the Pro 14. Yeah, no, absolutely. One thing that I was thinking about last night regarding Stockdale, if he's not there this weekend, presumably then we think that means he's not going to play against Italy, which means he will need game time, you would assume Ireland will want before the Scotland match, and Handley before that match, Ospreys and Leinster at home like that could be massive for Ulster if you've Jacob Stockdale lining up in that what we hope is going to be an all-important game against Leinster Yeah, especially if you've got John Cooney and Stuart McCluskey and Eric O'Sullivan and um, back. you know, you could essentially just be missing Burns, but you've got Madigan as an experienced back up there, Henderson obviously like, you know, and Herring obviously you're talking about important players, but John Andrews has been one of Ulster's best performers this year in Herring's absence, whereas Lampster could be missing 15 players. No, absolutely. One day, one to get excited about already, but uh, we'll leave that for a few weeks' time. Well, it's so, the league semi final if all goes to plan, like in, in everything but name yeah. at present. Yeah. Well, fingers crossed. Well, we'll not know whether it's fingers crossed or not, but we'll not completely rule out the potential that there might be an actual semi final back, back in play at some stage. Who knows at this stage? John, you were just mentioning there then the players that uh, get released back to Ulster and have done today. We've got the news Stuart McCloskey and Tom O'Toole are both back in the Ulster panel, as are John Cooney and Eric O'Sullivan, who were with the Ireland squad at the weekend providing injury cover. So Stuart Martin asks, um, is there any reason why they all shouldn't start against Glasgow? Are you expecting those four players to, to start the game? I don't think there's any reason why they shouldn't start. And at the end of the day, you know, when was the last time they played? They all, these boys all need game time. So um, from an Ireland point of view, Ireland want them to get playing. Um, you know, obviously, obviously, Ulster want to play out their strongest team. So if they are available, well, why would you not pick their strongest team? Mm-hmm. You're going to Scottsdale. You need your strongest team. Yeah, and that's the other thing that we, we need to get on to. They very much do need their strongest team because as regards the, the matches that Ulster have left to play, this is one of the, the more different. I know Glasgow aren't what they used to be, but still going over there, needing a bonus point, it's not not exactly a gimme, John. No, what, what's the weather conditions like for the weekend or for Friday? Right on the They're weekend. meant to be better than they were last weekend, which was obviously uh, snow-covered. But Because um... that is one hard place to play at if the wind blows straight down that pitch 
um, and it's a plastic pitch as well. It's just an uncomfortable place to play at. It's not particularly nice. Um, the surface and then the, the weather conditions can be quite awful. But having said that, Ulster, Ulster can, you know, they need to go there and, and turn up and go out and, and put a really good solid performance behind them, you know. MPC asks very simply, what's the prospects of a bonus point? Which is, we all know what is required at this stage. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I think we talked about it a few weeks ago. Like, Scarlet's was one of those fixtures that you were sort of looking at thinking that maybe it would be a Leinster win but not with a bonus point and that obviously didn't happen so Leinster are four points ahead now so also need bonus points so it's not a case of you know win the game and see if a bonus point comes they need five points from every game because outside of that game against Ulster Leinster might not drop another point so the difference between getting bonus points get sorry getting a full complement of bonus points in your other games and dropping one could be that Leinster are coming to Belfast just knowing that they need to avoid getting beat 5-0 in terms of match points, which is massive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, those Leinster fixtures, just to remind people, they're away to Dragons this weekend, and then at home to Glasgow, then that Ulster match, and their last two are away to Zebra, and at home to Osprey. So as you say, like it's very, very difficult to see where they're not picking up a bonus point out of that lot, which if, if that's the case, then Ulster need a bonus point and to better Leinster by four points at, at Kingspan. So, yeah, like it's it's a bonus point, an absolute must. Like Glasgow yeah. are in a pretty interesting position because they're not contributing the same number of players to the Scotland squad as they were in their sort of 2015 heyday, if you like, when basically, mm-hmm. you know, there were 16, 17 players in the Scotland squad. So they've got nine away in the initial squad and then another one joined up. But the the test of Glasgow is going to be where those players are. Like So for instance, they've got two hookers in the Scotland squad, plus Fraser Brown's injured. So they'll be down to their fourth choice hooker. Uh, they're essentially missing their entire tight five. So while they don't have, have as many players, they've got some players in key positions and it's really going to be a test for the depth. Like Danny Wilson has come out um, the last couple of weeks and said that with the way that things are with some of their young players, like they're essentially going to have to use these last five games to make decisions about young players' contracts because they haven't been able to see them play anywhere else because there's no other rugby being played in Scotland. So you are going to see some inexperienced players playing, I think. But equally, you know, that's an opportunity. These are guys that are desperate, some of them to secure their futures with with Glasgow. So there's going to be no shortage of motivation, you know, and whenever they've played... You know, the guy Thompson that was playing 10 for them um, looks a pretty bright prospect. He'll be an interesting one to watch. Jamie Dobby as well is another one who's even been on Scotland's radar recently. So um, they've got some exciting young players, as you would expect, I suppose, in a country where there are two professional teams. Like their young players should be good, you know. But it's going to be a fascinating mix, I think, of how they go about putting out performances and getting results over these next mm-hmm block of games with so many key players away and obviously haven't mentioned them yet but uh, the possibility of a Leonie Nakawara signing again playing against uh, mm-hmm. playing against Ulster ahead of moving there next season absolutely one of the the more interesting points of this game what did you make of that as a signing John we haven't been been speaking to you since uh great signing um I think he's a absolute wonderful player um it's it's interesting he's he's an offloading really five six so it'll be how Ulster want to develop the game around him. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, he's a sort of, I, I put him in a Nick Williams type scenario in that he's an Islander uh, type player who obviously, um, you know, coming to Ulster, this could be a, a, you know, the way Nick Williams came here and everybody was sort of thinking, you know, um, what's this going to be like? Um, how is this going to work? As a, How is he going to fit into the team? And, you know, he could use this as a, a springboard, you know, to, to really... Uh, rejuvenate his career um, and I think he's every you know with the players that Ulster have in their squad he'll fit in very well and they'll make him very welcome and uh, and hopefully he'll settle down quickly and uh, start producing the goods in the pitch. Hopefully he doesn't start that uh, too soon uh, really any time after this weekend would be fine. That would, that would do that would well, do. Like Ulster obviously do you want to see him get rugby because he hasn't played a lot yeah. Um, yeah. But yes, not uh, not this weekend. But I thought the quotes from Dan McFarland in today's paper from yesterday's briefing, I thought were really interesting, actually. Um, just talking about how when they went to replace Marcel Gatsia, the thing they prioritised was the ability to make a difference, not what 
not replacing what Katia brings to the team, but the idea mm-hmm. of making somebody that can make a difference, like John mentioned, the offload in there. And that seems to be something that they're really keen to press in terms of the tempo of the game and um, things like that. I, like, I still do think it's a gamble, obviously, because just the fact of the matter is that he hasn't consistently played since 2019 and we're now in 2021. But it's, it's going to be another one that's really fascinating to see how it plays out next year. Absolutely. Look, you've twisted my arm there, Jonathan, by mentioning it. We'll, we'll let our listeners hear just what Dan had to say about him. Here it is. We didn't want to try and go out and out and out and face Marcel, you know, like a like for like. It wasn't going to happen. You know, it would be very difficult in world rugby to find a player of, uh, of a similar nature and, and caliber as, as him. So we wanted to look at, at uh, somebody in sort of that back five of the scrum who's a, who can play back row, who's going to be a difference maker, who would add something different. You know, the, the common perception around Germany is his offloading game, but he, he's a good set piece forward. Like he, he's a really good line out forward. Um, he understands uh, more. Uh, he scrums extremely well if he's asked to play in the second row. You know, he works hard. You know, he's not the physical hitter or the slam into you type player, the, the, the collision type player that Marcel, in terms of being able to open up a game or break a game open. There aren't many players who, who can do the same to the same level that he can in that position. So, John, just before we go, give us a give us an answer very quickly there to that question. What are the prospects of a bonus point win? I think there's a good possibility. Um, I would say eight out, eight out of ten. Um, I would like to think it'll be up about that sort of a an area. I think that uh, Ulster know that every chance they get, they need to get that bonus point. Part of me says, look, just win the game first, make sure you're well in front, and then you can start to throw the ball about and look for that bonus point. But the the struggle the wee bit scoring three tries this year, and then sort of hanging on, hanging, getting the the bonus point later on. So... I just, I'm just keen for them to get it early uh, and then they can start to throw the ball about. Another bonus point before half time, like they were doing earlier in the season. That would, that would do lovely. That would do. That would do. So we'll be back next week to discuss that and look ahead to, to games for Ulster and Ireland in uh, a busy weekend, the following weekend. But uh, for now, that's us for this week. So many thanks to you, John Dixon. Lovely to have you back on. Thank you. Good to be here. Thanks. And thank you once again, Jonathan. Cheers. Thank you. And for myself as well, Gareth, thank you all very much for listening.